Well, I might have been an athlete if it weren't for Davy Funk. Davy Funk is a girl, and she is the girl who broke my arm. My freshman year in high school, I went out for the wrestling team. Uh, I was kind of a, a bookish kid, kind of a nerd growing up, and so I'd never really done a sport before, and this was kind of a big deal for me to do. Uh, my friends had convinced me to do it because this was actually the first year that our school district offered uh, wrestling as a sport, and so that meant that most other freshmen, they hadn't wrestled either, and I thought, well, I, I couldn't be too far behind. I could learn how to do this, uh, and I did, at least for the first three weeks of the season, and then Davy Funk happened. Uh, one Sunday afternoon, uh, some kids from my church invited me to go play football with them. And since I was, you know, into this, you know, sportsing thing, all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I'm going to go do that. Uh, and it was a, a mix of guys and girls playing. And for some reason, we decided we'd play tackle rather than touch. And so about halfway through the game, my team's on defense and uh, there's a pass. Somebody catches it. I go and I tackle the guy. He's down. The play is over. And I'm, I'm like feeling pretty good. I'm like, yeah, this is great. But apparently, uh, Davy didn't get the message, so she doesn't think the guy's down, so she retackles him right onto my arm, and I lift my arm up, and it looks like a Tetris piece. It was just disgusting. So uh, for the next two months, I'm in a hard cast, which means I can't wrestle. Um, I'm still on the team, and I go to the practices and the tournaments, and I watch, and I, you know, learn strategy and stuff, but I can't wrestle, can't practice. Uh, a few months later, I get my cast off. The doctor says, you're okay to go, you know, back to wrestling, and Problem was, by that time, everybody on the team had been practicing every single day for the entire season, and that meant I just couldn't keep up. It didn't matter how much time I had spent with wrestlers. It didn't matter how much I knew about wrestling. Because I didn't practice, I never really became a wrestler, and the next year I didn't come back. Thanks a lot, Davey. This week is the last week in our series, Restoration, Out with the Old and In with the New. And here is the premise. God is in the restoration business. In the beginning, God made people in his image. Uh, he made us to represent him, to reflect who he is in the world. And that means that we are God's work of art. That we were made to put on display his love and his wisdom and his justice and his goodness out in the world. That is why you exist. You are God's masterpiece. But because all of us have sinned, every one of us have rejected that calling to reflect God we're still God's artwork, but we've been ruined. We, we're stained and we're torn. and the, the beauty that God made us for is warped and it's obscured. But here's the good news. God is not just the great artist. He's the great art restorer. Jesus came to put back together the lives of people like you and me to rescue us from sin, to heal our brokenness, to free us from our addictions, to heal our relationships. The, the, this is the good news that Jesus came and he died and he rose again so that you, God's masterpiece, could be restored to the glory that God intended for you. For the past four weeks, we've been talking about this process, how it works in our lives. Uh, we started off talking about God's resurrection power. Uh, we talked about the need for repentance, turning away from, from sin in our life. We've talked about the importance of community, having people around us as we grow. And today, we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines. Uh, to do that, we're going to be looking at a passage in the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. So if you've got a Bible, go and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 with me. Uh, all the letters in the Bible are clumped towards the back. Uh, so start from the back and flip forward. Uh, the books that start with T actually are all grouped together. So if you find one, uh, you found them all. Uh, 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was one of the first followers of Jesus Christ, uh, and what he did was he traveled around the Roman Empire, going from city to city, planting churches in every city that he went to. 
Uh, and as he was traveling, he would keep in touch with all of these churches by writing them letters. Uh, and so what happened over time is some of these letters, people said, man, this is powerful stuff. God is speaking to me through these letters. Uh, and they started collecting them. Uh, and that's how we got them in our New Testament. Uh, the letter that we're looking at today was actually written to a young leader uh, in one of these churches, a guy named Timothy, and he was facing some situations in his church uh, that were just really tough. And, and as Paul gives advice, what's really interesting about his advice is he doesn't just say, okay, here's what you need to do. He also says, let me tell you what kind of person you need to be if you're going to be able to respond to these sorts of things in the future. So we're going to look at a passage where Paul uh, talks about uh, not just what to do, but how to become the kind of person we're supposed to be. So look at chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. Let me pause here and highlight something that just happened. As we read these words, God spoke to us. God, the almighty, all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe, just spoke to us. I know some of you are skeptical about that claim, but if it's true, it's an incredible gift and something we should be thankful for. So let's express our thanks to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The main command in this passage is train yourself to be godly. Right, we're going to look at that command from three different angles, and we're going to start with this angle. We're going to talk about the need for training, the need for training, because the underlying assumption in this passage is that you are going to be shaped by something. You are not a static, fixed being. You are always changing, always developing. In six months, six years, six decades from now, you are not going to be the same person that you are at this moment. And maybe you experienced this. If you've ever lost touch with someone that you knew pretty well, uh, you haven't seen them in a few years, but you catch up over coffee and you, you, you start talking to them and you realize they've, they've changed a lot. Uh, not just their circumstances, but their, their character and their values. Uh, maybe they've mellowed out a bit or their, their temper's gotten worse or they've gotten more political or less religious. And if you had been around them day in and day out, you might not have noticed the change so much because it was gradual. But because you haven't seen them in a while, it's really dramatic. The interesting thing about that experience is that that person is looking at you over coffee and thinking the exact same thing because you have changed. Who you are right now is not who you're going to be in the future. So the important question becomes not whether you will change, but what you will let change you. A lot of times we think that who we become is determined by our choices. You know, we realize, okay, I'm a judgmental person. So we choose to be more open to other people. Uh, or we think, you know what, I, I just wish I could be more present with my friends and my family, the people around me. And so we decide, I, I'm going to live more in the moment. Or, or we wish that we were less insecure. And so we say, you know, I'm just going to decide right now not to worry so much about what other people think. Does that really work? Like if you make that sort of deliberate choice to change right now, like how long does that last? For me, it's like 20 minutes, you know? Like, it just, it just doesn't stick that way. That's, I revert to my ingrained habits and reactions. Uh, choosing to change your character is a lot like choosing to learn piano or choosing to reduce your cholesterol. Like, choices are important, but it's not enough to get it done. So what does shape us? Uh, at the college I went to, uh, in one of the buildings, there was this statue, this bust uh, of the first president of the college. Uh, so imagine this like 1800s abolitionist with a big old beard and a stern look to match, okay? 
It's a, a bronze statue, and that means that most of it is kind of a, a dull brown patina, uh, but not all of it. Uh, one part of it is bright and shiny gold. You know which part of us? The nose. The nose. How did it get that way? Well, it didn't happen because someone went up to the statue and said, all right, I'm going to push really, really hard for a while, and all of a sudden it was shiny. Uh, no, what happened is that every day for a century, sweaty palm sophomores came up and rubbed that nose for good luck on the way to some exam, hoping that it was going to help them. Uh, day after day, year after year, it worn down the patina so that it was uh, bright and shiny. Uh, transformation is a gradual process. It comes through repeated experiences. That's what determines who we become. And this is why Paul warns Timothy in this passage, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. If you read the entire book, you realize that there's this uh, situation in the background of the whole thing. Uh, Paul is talking the whole time about the, this group of people in Timothy's church that, that have gotten into some pretty weird theology, some strange ideas. The, the group is obsessed with these Jewish myths and legends. And they're always speculating about the, the details of the spiritual world and what's out there in the unseen realms and they're teaching people that the present physical world is evil. And so what they say is uh, people should follow really strict rules to make sure you don't get tainted by the physical stuff. You know, people shouldn't get married. They shouldn't have sex. They shouldn't eat certain foods. People should strive to be more spiritual and less physical. That, that's how you're going to please God. That's how you're going to live a good life. Now, you might hear those ideas and say, I, I don't get what the appeal is. But in that culture, in that community, it resonated with people. It made sense. They said, yeah, yeah, the spiritual is good, the physical is bad, that, 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 that's something. And so these ideas are gaining popularity. And so when Paul mentions godless myths and wives' tales, that, that's what he's referring to. And, and the reason Paul warns Timothy about them is because, first of all, they're completely incompatible with the gospel. They're incompatible with the teaching of Christianity. Uh, God isn't against the physical world or our physical bodies. He's for them. That's the reason Jesus became a human being. That's the reason Jesus was raised from the dead in his body. Jesus wants to rescue and restore the physical world. But Paul isn't warning just because they're wrong, but also because they're pervasive. Like it's in the air. People are talking about this stuff. People are trying to live this way. And so Paul's saying, Timothy, if you don't pay attention, these ideas, they're, they're going to just rub off on you. You're going to start being like these people. And Paul, Paul's warning, something is going to form you so you better make a choice. Don't settle for just the status quo of whatever's out there. It looks different for us, but the same principle applies. Something is going to form you. And you've got to make a decision. Are you going to be formed by the default ways of thinking and living that you encounter or by something else? Take a look at your life. Like the ordinary day-to-day, week-in, week-out routine of your life and ask, what's shaping me? You've heard me say this before in other sermons, but the things that shape us are, are things that are repetitive, engaging, and involve people. They're repetitive, engaging, and involve people. The, the things that we do again and again, repetitively, they're like water running over the same spot in the ground, digging a deeper and deeper groove. We're, we're shaped deeply by the things that engage us, that, that catch our attention and, and stir our thoughts and our emotions and move our body. Like, like, think of the stories that suck you in and absorb you, you know, the, the shows you watch and the books you read. How are those things shaping you? And we're shaped, most of all, by people. The, the biggest factor in who you become is who you give the most of your time and your heart to. The, the book of Proverbs says, if you walk with the wise, you will become wise. I think it's also true to say that if you walk with the busy, you will become busy. If you walk with the fearful, 
you will become fearful. If you walk with the critical, you'll become critical. So ask yourself, in my day-to-day life, what is going on that is repetitive, engaging, and involves important people? Anything that falls into two or three of those categories is probably forming you pretty deeply. But here's the problem with this. A lot of the time, the default things that form us are forming us in the wrong direction. They're forming us through forces of anti-grace. They're anti-grace. They're all about the things that I've got to do, you've got to do, so that you can make something of yourself, so that you can be okay. These are the things that you need to accomplish and be. So what happens is advertisement after advertisement says to you, you know what, you're not happy enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not efficient enough, and you're not well-liked enough. But if you had our product, you would be. Every movie... Every pop song is telling you, you know, you got to find your own way. you got to chart your own path. you got to follow your dreams, which is really inspiring. But then you try it out, and it's so wearying, so tiring to always have to make something of yourself. In all sorts of different environments, we are repeatedly put under pressure to perform. And we're told that our well-being depends on making the grade and earning the promotion and finding your soulmate and fill in the blank. But you got to do something to prove your worth. And again and again, these things get worked into our hearts and they warp us and they twist us. And these are the things that turn us in on ourselves and drive us to sin and to addiction and they ruin our lives, the forces of anti-grace. We cannot let these things shape us. It's just why Paul tells Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Training is the alternative to being shaped by the status quo. It's making a deliberate choice of what you will let form you. So so how do you do that? Here's where the second point comes in. We're going to talk about the habit of training, the habit of training. In order to counteract those uh, effects of all the things that are shaping us, we've got to have routines in our life that shape us by grace. Uh, These habits and routines we call spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are practices that shape our hearts through the experience of God's grace in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some theologians use an older term to talk about this. They they talk about means of grace to describe these practices. They they give our hearts a a steady stream of exposure to the love and the kindness and the grace of God. So that is the primary thing shaping us. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has known for years that these kinds of practices are essential to the process of recovery. Uh, This is what step 11 in the 12 steps says. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. Uh, One alcoholic described it this way. He said, I I used to worship the bottle. I I took every problem to the bottle. I I continued to put my faith in the bottle until long after it betrayed my trust and ruined my life. So he said the, the reason these sorts of practices like prayer and meditation, connection with God are so important is they teach us to, to take our worship to the place where it belongs, to take our needs to the ones who can handle it, uh, to, to bring all of our, our life and ourself and all the things that are weighing us to the one who actually cares and has grace and kindness towards us, not the one who's going to ruin our lives. Another way of thinking about spiritual disciplines is that they're a spiritual workout routine, a workout routine for your soul. Uh, that's the metaphor that Paul uses. In verse 8, he, he compares it to physical exercise. A, a few years ago, uh, my doctor informed me that I am no longer 25. Uh, he told me that if I wanted to stay healthy, I could no longer eat, you know, double cheeseburgers and frozen pizzas like I was a growing teenager. And he said, I, I really should probably start working out. 
Now, at this point in my life, I still hadn't figured out how the working out thing worked, and most of what I knew about exercise came from training montages in movies. Uh, so my first workout routine consisted of this, running up the steps of the Philadelphia Art Museum, work for Rocky, waxing Mr. Miyagi's car, and swinging around Dagobah with Yoda on my back. Uh, not a practical plan. So I went to the internet, uh, which was also a problem because there's, you know, like 100,000 workout routines on there. And, and not having done this before, I didn't know which one to pick, which one was a good one. Uh, but as I looked at them over time, I realized that most of the workouts kind of boiled down to a few basic categories of exercises. Every plan had something to uh, give you a cardio workout, something for strength training, uh, something for flexibility and for balance. And uh, it, it, there were lots of different ways you could get this, but when it came down to it, all of them had these ingredients. And I realized, you know, if I learned some basic exercises in each of these categories, even if I didn't learn all of this elaborate stuff, I'd probably be pretty healthy. I'd probably be all right. The same thing is true with spiritual disciplines. If you pick up a book on spiritual disciplines, which is something I'd recommend that you do, you're going to find lists of all sorts of things that you can do. Great stuff. Silence and solitude and fasting, spiritual direction, different forms of meditation on scripture. It's really good stuff. I got shelves full of these sorts of books. But that can feel really overwhelming. When it comes down to it, there are really just a few basic categories of spiritual disciplines. And you can, you know, think of lots of different things in each of these categories, but if you just learn some basic ones, you're going to be pretty healthy, and it's going to train you for godliness. Here are the four categories that I came up with, four core categories. Worship, serving and giving, Bible, and prayer. Worship is just my catch-all word for all of the things that happen when we gather together with God's people like we're doing right now. It includes singing praises to God and offering up prayers as a group and listening to God's word and celebrating baptism and communion. Worship like this forms us in really powerful ways. Most of what it does is it reorients our world around God. Day in and day out, we are told this is the most important thing, this is the most important thing, this is the most important thing. But when we gather here, we are reminded of who the real center of the universe is, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one of glory and love. Uh, worship really is the linchpin spiritual discipline. Uh, most people uh, who are not regularly in public worship are also not regularly doing any of the other spiritual disciplines. But people who are regularly, weekly in, spirit, in, in uh, public worship are usually uh, much better to do the other spiritual disciplines. The uh, second category is serving and giving. Uh, these are the disciplines of partnering with God's people. Our world shapes us over time to treat the things that we have, our, our time and our abilities and our money, as if they belong to us and we're supposed to be used for our benefit alone. But what serving and giving does is it, it trains us, it trains our hearts to see the things that we have, uh, not as things that we've earned for ourselves, but as gifts to be used generously for the good of other people. Uh, the discipline of engaging with the Bible is the way we listen to God, we hear from God. The, the world is bombarding us with so many different voices all the time. But we need to hear something that we know is true, something we know is trustworthy. This is where we hear what God really thinks about us, what God really wants from us, what God has really done for us. This is where we hear words of grace. If we don't come back to the Bible again and again, our hearts are going to be shaped by all the spin and hype and propaganda of the world around us. We need to hear from God. And we're told in Scripture over and over again to fill our lives with these words. Where we're told to meditate on it and, and memorize it and talk about it and delight in it and walk in its ways. 
so that every nook and cranny of our life is filled with the words of God. Prayer are the disciplines of talking to God. It's really simple. We, we hear from God in his word. We speak to God in prayer. And there's so much grace that we experience in prayer. In, in prayer, we, we experience the fact that we are not on our own, in spite of what it might feel. We're not carrying the whole world and our whole lives on our shoulders. We, we are not trying to fend for ourselves. We have a God who loves us and cares for our needs, big and small. In prayer, we experience partnering with God. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our prayers, but he says, I want to invite you in to be a part of what I'm doing, to, to join with me in prayer in my work. In prayer, we experience a God who is close to us even when we're angry, even when we're afraid, even when we are hurting deeply because we can cry out and lament and realize that in the place when it seems like God is furthest from us, he is actually closest to us. He hears us and he loves us. He doesn't send us away. And in prayer, we experience the God who delights in us, who really does just enjoy us. He's like a father who just likes to hear from his kids whatever's going on in their heart. He just wants to be with us. Prayer is such a gift, and it has the power to shape us in the deepest places of our heart. These are the four basic categories of spiritual discipline. Worship, serving and giving, Bible and prayer. And if we're going to train ourselves for godliness, we've got to work each of these types of disciplines into our regular rhythm of life. Easier said than done. Uh, there is something so annoying about this passage, I've got to tell you. Paul uses a terrible analogy to talk about spiritual training. He, when, when he says it's like physical exercise, it's like, it's like saying, you know what, reading the Bible is a lot like lifting weights. And you say, yeah, I don't lift weights either, you know? Like, how does this help? Like, it's not that we don't want to do these things. It's just, how, how do you make them, you know, regular habits in your life? Like, how are they more than just good intentions and actual behavior? I recently read a really good book. It's called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Uh, Duhigg, uh, what he does is he looks at a bunch of recent research on uh, the, the brain science of habits, and he distills it into a really understandable form. Now, one of the most helpful things that he explains is the concept of the habit loop. He says that every habit, good or bad, consists of three parts, a cue, a routine, and a reward. Uh, the cue is whatever prompts you to perform the habit. The routine is the actual behavior you carry out. And the reward is whatever you get at the end that tells your brain, oh, that was good, you know? It reinforces that behavior, which makes you more likely to respond to the cue again. So for example, when you walk down the hall and you pass a vending machine, that's a cue. When you buy and you eat the Snickers bar, that's the routine. And when your sweet tooth is satisfied, at least for now, that's the reward. And Duhigg says, okay, the key to establishing a new habit is getting these three parts right. So let me actually walk through that habit loop for these spiritual disciplines to talk about uh, prayer and Bible reading and how you work them into your life. If you want to work them into your life, the first thing you need to do is you need to pick a cue that's going to set off the habit. Because uh, if you go tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm, I, I want to do that. I want to read my Bible. I'm going to get to it sometime. You probably won't. And you say, well, I'll try again tomorrow. And then you probably won't. If you just think sometime I'll do it, it probably no time you'll do it. But what you need to do is pick a cue. The most helpful thing that I found in this regard is to actually identify a routine that already exists in your life and make that the cue. So it might be eating breakfast or taking a shower or preparing for bed, things you always do every day, and then sort of piggyback the new habit on that old habit, that link them into a chain. So here's how I did this with, with prayer and Bible. So for Bible, I made my cue 
my morning commute, when I get into the car. Now, I do this every single day, and so I decided the first thing I do when I get in the car is I'm going to plug in my phone, and I'm going to listen to my Bible reading for the day, because like I'm an auditory person, so I like to listen uh, to the Bible. And, and at first, I needed to put a, you know, a sticky note on the ignition to make sure I did this, but after you know, three, four days, it became just a habit. I you know, plugged in my thing, and I listened to the Bible uh, for the first 10 minutes of, of driving to work. And then for prayer, I made my cue pulling into the parking lot at work every day. So before I get out of the car, I spend a few minutes, I offer myself up to God. I ask him to make me more like him. And then I pray for the meetings and the tasks that are on my calendar and for the people I expect to see. I know other people who have different cues. They, you know, pick breakfast or their lunch break or the end of their workout routine, things they're already doing in life. My experience is if you don't have a cue, uh, you're not going to be pretty consistent in these things. But once you have one, uh, you need to plan a routine. Because sitting down and just, you know, flipping through the Bible and saying, what am I going to read today? It is, one, it's frustrating and boring. Uh, but it's probably not something you're going to be able to stick with for a long time. So you need a plan. Uh, and here's the thing. There are lots of plans on how to get in the Bible. Tons of really good ones. It's sort of like a cardio workout. You can run or you can bike or you can swim or you can dance. But it all gets your heart rate up and does what it's supposed to do. Same is true with the Bible. Tons of approaches to studying scripture, tons of approaches to meditating on it. But here's the thing. Uh, most of the best plans involve in some form uh, at least three things. Observing the details of the text, paying attention to it. Uh, contemplating, pondering what they mean. And then applying what you see there to your life in some way. And, and so that's the reason why at our church we created the Bible Savvy Plan. Uh, the coma method that we use in our plan isn't the only way to read the Bible but it's one of the best. It's a tried and true way to get into God's word. And we made the, the Bible savvy and the epic journals to make it really simple to be able to do that. Uh, you don't have to uh, come up with a routine for yourself. We've got one ready made for you. We've done the work already. Now, of course, some of you, you might say, well, I've already got another plan for reading the Bible and it's working for me. And I say, great, keep doing that. No need to change. But for most of us, we don't have that and we need the help. But whatever you do, though, uh, you need a plan for your routine in reading the Bible. Uh, same is true for prayer. One of, one of the main reasons people don't stick with prayer is because like 15 seconds into praying, your mind is like gone and you don't know how to find it and how do you get back to what you were doing. Uh, what you need is some simple structure, a simple structure that helps you know, guide your routine. Uh, that's why a lot of people around here uh, use the, the acronym CHAT. Maybe you've heard it before. C-H-A-T. Confess, honor, ask, and thank. They follow that pattern. For other people, they'll use the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, that prayer we prayed earlier in the service. They'll walk through each line and pray for things related to that. Uh, for my wife Michelle and I, when we pray at the end of the day, uh, we pray for different groups of people. We've got some categories. We pray for friends and neighbors, for work and church, and for our family, and we walk through that. Uh, which plan you use is not the important part, but having a plan helps a lot. Uh, of course, you're always free to deviate from the plan. If the Spirit's moving a different way, you can do something different. But a lot of times, just knowing what comes next makes it easier to get through. Uh, the third thing you need after a cue and a routine is a reward. Uh, this is one of the things that makes spiritual disciplines uh, tricky is because there are no immediate consequences for either doing or not doing these practices. Think about it. Like if you read the Bible one day, uh, it's probably not gonna change your life. It might, but most of the time it isn't. And if you skip prayer one day, your life is probably not going to fall apart. The effects of these practices are long-term. And so what you need is something that's shorter-term to give you a, a sense of reward, a sense of completion and satisfaction when you've done these things. 
Now, here's the thing. I am not talking about something like eating a piece of chocolate every day after you, you know, read your Bible. Um, you, if it works for you, great. Like, that's a lot of fun. Uh, richer life that way. Um, but, I, you know, it's not like training a dog like, oh, who's a good little girl? Who's a good little girl? Yes, you are. You got through Numbers chapter 10. Here's a cheatsy weetsy, okay? Like, that's, <laughs> that's not what we're doing. But a better uh, reward is some experience that's related to what you're doing when you're reading the Bible. Uh, so that's the reason why a lot of people find journaling really helpful. What it does is it takes something that it kind of exists inside your head and externalizes it. it. You write down something you're taking away from the scriptures, so you say, oh, I actually got something here. Uh, it, it, uh, it's also helpful. One of the things I find even more helpful than writing is actually talking about scripture. Now, I want to take something I read and I want to say to someone later in the day, hey, here's what I got out of it. Uh, some people will do this through text. They'll, you know, every day after they read scripture, they'll text something they got out of it to a friend. There's lots of community groups that use this as accountability. Uh, sometimes siblings will do this with each other. Uh, for my kids, when we read the Bible to them, uh, they draw pictures of what we're reading. So we're reading this story, and they're, they're coloring a picture of Moses or whatever. Uh, and so at the end of the Bible reading, they say, oh, look, this is, this is what I learned. Uh, and here's the interesting thing. Drawing is not just something for kids. Uh, some of you are visual people. And so for, for you, a great way to respond to Scripture is to actually create something, make something in that way. The, the reward can come in lots of forms, but the idea is to do something that gives you a sense of satisfaction and completion when you read and when you pray. Now, before I move on, I, I want to address a really common barrier to getting into this habit. It, it's the problem of feeling like your life is so busy, so full, that you don't know how you're going to fit this uh, into your already crammed schedule. Now, here's the honest thing. For a lot of people, that's kind of an excuse. It's not really true. But for some people, for many people, it actually is a challenge. In particular, I think of one group of people. I think of mothers of young children. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a mom say, you know, before I had kids, I used to like to sit down and, you know, drink a cup of coffee and read my Bible and journal and all this stuff. But now, like, when am I going to have time to do that? I've got three kids, six and under. And the other day, my wife texted me this picture that's been going on around the Internet. I always thought I'd grow up to be Belle. Turns out I'm actually this lady. I need six eggs! <laughs> Any of you relate to that? Uh, my wife is a, a stay-at-home mom right now, but for uh, a few years, she was working full-time when we had kids, and it was even harder for her to find, you know, a, a traditional quiet time. If you're a single parent, it might feel even more like this. So what I did this week is I actually uh, talked to a few moms of young kids, and I said, well, how do you do it? You know, how do you work in spiritual disciplines? Here's a couple of things that they said. First thing they said is this. Uh, they work prayer and Bible into their daily routine in small doses throughout the day. So one mom says, you know, I, I use my time folding laundry. I, I put the Bible on my phone app and I listen to it. Uh, and then as I'm folding the laundry, I pray for each person as I fold their clothes. Uh, some will use nap time. Uh, lots of moms will pray while they're nursing or pumping for their kids. Uh, one mom said that she leaves a Bible right by the breakfast table because she knows that there is this golden window of like five or ten minutes after the kids have eaten and before they need to get dressed for school when there's a little bit of peace and quiet. And so she picks it up, reads the Bible lesson for the day, and instead of you know, writing something down there, she picks out a detail and ponders it for the rest of the day. It's almost like she stretched that coma process out over the entire day. Uh, another thing that they said was this. said, be careful not to beat yourself up about not having a traditional quiet time at, you know, like the beginning or the end of the day. Uh, God is present with you in all of the mundane and ordinary moments. God is the God of life. He, he's not the God just of the, the quiet and the removed. He's the God of the hustle and the bustle of, the, of real life. 
it's interesting. The, the very first chapter in the Bible to ever actually explain how to interact with God's word is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that my word is on your heart. I want you to press it in deeply. And he says, here's how you should do it. And he, does, he paints this picture uh, of life with God's word. And he says, you know, wait, start talking about it when you wake up. And talk about it when you lie down. And talk about it when you're sitting around your house. And talk about it when you're walking along the road. And the, the, the idea is there's, you have a normal schedule of life, and, and you weave Scripture into all of that. It, it's part of the normal routine. And it sounds a lot like the routine of a busy mom. That's how God says it gets impressed in your heart and on the hearts of your kids. So don't feel guilty if you're in a season of life where you feel like you don't have that traditional format of alone time with God. Uh, but instead, figure out cues throughout your day to make sure that, that it triggers prayer and Bible at all of these different moments. Here's another thing I would say to parents, especially if you've got kids that are just a little bit older. Uh, don't forget that your primary responsibility as a parent is to introduce your kids to God. And that includes teaching them these disciplines of participating in worship, of serving and giving, of Bible and prayer. And I know some of you, you feel a little bit funny, a little intimidated about uh, making your kids do these things, which is interesting because we make them do all sorts of other things that we know are going to be good for them that they don't necessarily want to do. We make our kids do homework and chores and eat right. We make sure that they never miss a practice or a game. And it makes us feel like a good parent when we do that because we are being good parents when we do that. We know that instilling these habits in them are going to be a blessing for them for the rest of their life. But there is nothing that will bless your kids more than teaching them how to worship weekly with God's people and to serve and to give and to read scripture and to pray. If that's all you ever did for your kids, you would be some of the best parents a kid could ask for. Let's talk about one last aspect of spiritual training, and that's the benefits of training. Look again at verse 8. This is what Paul says. He says, physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and for the life to come. Here's one of the challenges when we talk about spiritual disciplines. For a lot of people, it just feels like more rules, like one more requirement, like one, one more obligation, you know, something you've got to do. And it almost paints a picture of life that sounds a little bit confining and rigid. You've got all these routines and rituals. And isn't that going to kind of rob you of the freedom and joy and life and flexibility? You know, it's a relationship with God. You don't want to stifle the spirit with all of these things. But Paul says spiritual training has value for all things, for this life and for the next. To demonstrate how this is, I'm going to call out uh, our worship pastor here in St. Charles, Ben Radliff, to come out on the, the platform with me. So let's welcome Ben here. Ben's going to grab his guitar here, and he is going to demonstrate something for us.
So here's the question. Why can Ben do that? Because he practiced. Ben has been playing the guitar for years. He has put thousands of hours into that instrument. He studied the guitar. He studied music. And I guarantee, especially at the start, learning to play the guitar involved a lot of dull, rote, routine practice. But what's the result? It's the freedom to do something that most of us couldn't do even if we wanted to. Even if we tried really hard, we worked, you know, we had the best intentions. Practice over time turned Ben into the sort of person who can create beautiful music. Practice gives us freedom to do things that we couldn't have done otherwise. The the principle holds true in lots of areas of life. Athletes run drills and elementary school kids, they sound out their letters and their words and dancers practice positions. Most things worth doing in life involve some kind of not-so-exciting training and practice. Most of us, we want to be the sort of people uh, who do things differently than we actually do. We we want to show compassion rather than indifference. We want to learn humbly rather than judging other people. We want to be there for our friends rather than being focused only on ourselves. And when we look at, you know, these great moral heroes, people like Martin Luther King Jr., and we, we look at them and we say, how can you be a person like that? Like, they're just a different type of person. I don't have what they have. I could never do what they do. But here's the interesting thing. When you look at lives like that, you actually find out that they involve a lot of practice. In the case of Martin Luther King Jr., he actually had a list. He said, you know what I do to to make it so that it's possible for me to fight for justice like this? Here are the practices that are worked into my life. Let me read a few of them to you. He says, I meditate daily on the life and teaching of Jesus. I pray daily to be used by God. I perform regular service for others. I pray for the oppressor. What makes acts of courageous love possible? Spiritual disciplines. The the disciplines that expose us to God's grace in Jesus again and again and again so that that becomes the thing that shapes our heart and our way of life. That's what frees us from defensiveness and comparison and perfectionism and addiction. And the benefits are not just for this life, but for the life to come, Paul says. Training in godliness isn't just about here and now. It's the beginning of a process that's going to lead to us becoming not just better people, but completely new people, people who look like Jesus. Paul talks about this all the time. He says that we have been chosen to be conformed to the image of his son, that God chose us to be conformed to the image of Jesus so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, people who bear a family resemblance. In another place, Paul says that as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. This is to make you glorious. In 1 John 3, it says that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And then then it goes on to say, everybody who has this hope of being like Jesus purifies themselves just as he is pure. The the idea is we know that one day is coming when we're going to be like Jesus, so we try to be as much like him now as we can. Uh, Spiritual disciplines, in some way, are a way of bringing our future self into the present. Uh, That's what's so exciting about this. We can actually become like Jesus here and now. As we train for godliness, that's what happens. So here's the question. How are you going to make these things habits in your life? Let's pray. Father, it is incredible that you actually want to make us like Jesus. 
that you're gonna heal us and restore us to make us the masterpieces that you intend us to be. God, this is exciting. God, I, I pray for each person uh, that's gathered here today, uh, that you would give them uh, discipline, that you would give them resolve to begin these spiritual practices, that they would experiences, experience them as means of grace, as, as places of refreshment and joy, that they would find satisfaction in going to your word and praying and serving and giving and worshiping you. God, I pray for each one of them that you would draw out the glory uh, of your character in each one of them so that they shine for you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.